Support for WSKG Studios is provided by Downtown Ithaca Alliance, working for the community to make Downtown Ithaca a vibrant place for all. Information about events, local businesses, and more at downtownithaca.com. I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. Too often, we think of climate change as something that still hovers somewhere in the future, a kind of looming boogeyman that has become part of our mainstream political discourse over the past decade or two, but doesn't really affect our day-to-day lives. We imagine faraway islands disappearing under rising sea levels or famines that affect people in other parts of the world. What we often don't realize is that we're already experiencing the effects of climate change and that in communities across the United States, climate disasters are displacing thousands of people and sometimes destroying entire communities so completely that there is no rebuilding. My guest today is Jake Biddle. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and more. He's a staff writer at Grist, where he covers climate impacts and adaptation. His new book is The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. Jake, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Politicians and academics use the term climate migration, but you use the term climate displacement. Why is that? I use the term displacement because when I started reporting the book, I came to realize that the movement that's happening in the United States right now, it's not anywhere near as coherent or cohesive or one directional as we often think about when we think about the the term migration, right? So migration seems to imply, you know, coordinated movement of people from one place to another. And it's usually in some respects, voluntary. People want to get to a specific place. And what I was encountering was that people left for short amounts of time. They left and came back. They never really thought that they were going to leave permanently, but then they ended up leaving their home or they left multiple times. It was very chaotic. You know, in the book, I say it's like less like an arrow flying toward a target and more like a, a cauldron, you know, kind of churning as it reaches a boiling point. So I wanted to use a term that it's pretty universal in in housing studies and in the discourse around housing politics, but it's not generally used uh, in climate conversations. So I wanted to sort of describe the movement that way and make a distinction between our traditional notions of migration. We've heard terms like climate migration or climate refugee for more than a decade now. But I think the general perception is that this is something that happens in other parts of the world, when instead people are being displaced by climate events here in the United States today. Do you think the general public has a hard time understanding that? Yeah, I mean, when I started working on the book in in late 2020, I kind of did feel like people hadn't quite grasped the you know the fact that the impacts of climate change were already visible in the United States. It was mostly talked about in the future tense or as you said, something that's happening in a sort of a faraway part of the globe. And now I kind of feel like, you know, in the two years or so it took to write or get it out, I feel like there's a lot more awareness of, you know, the just the severity of climate shocks in the United States. There's a few things, you know, there's been some really bad hurricanes, wildfires and and a, a pretty severe drought in the West. And I feel like the media has done a lot better job of covering those things as well. So I do feel like there's more awareness now than there was when I started writing the book. But I, I was hoping, yeah, to show people that it's not just that there's these huge disasters, right? 
that come and go, that the effects of climate change are kind of creeping into all parts of, of American society and American life. So, so that I feel like people may not have grasped fully yet. Is there a general lack of understanding over just how long people whose homes are destroyed by a hurricane or a fire, just how long they spend trying to rebuild their lives? Yeah, I think that is something that people really don't understand unless they've experienced it themselves, is that I think because of the way that media coverage of disasters tends to work, you know, it's usually done by a few days or a few weeks after the hurricane strikes or the wildfire goes out. And yeah, these are really, really long processes. And the reason why I focused on disasters that had happened in, you know, 2017, 2018, when I started working on the book, is to show that these things have like a really long tail. It takes a really long time for the fate of a community to become clear and even longer for people to find a, a new permanent home or figure out where they're actually going to end up or even make the decision about whether they want to stay or go. So it takes a couple of years yet yeah, to understand the full effects of these things, which are often over in, in a few hours. And I think that that was one of the things that really struck me in, in thinking about how we as the media report on these events. And we don't go back unless it's happening in your local community 18 months later, when you're still trying to figure out the buyouts through FEMA, mm -hmm. or two years later, when you're still living in a rented home because you haven't been able to purchase your own, because generally speaking, the buyouts aren't enough to cover a new mortgage these days. How many people do you think that you talk to who are still experiencing some sort of impact on their day-to-day -day life from the, the weather disasters that they went through? Oh, man, that's a really good question. I mean, I spoke to probably you know, upwards of, I want to say probably upwards of 150 or 200 people who had experienced those disasters firsthand. And the majority of them, I would say, were still experiencing lingering economic effects, or they had ended up in a place where they never would have ended up if it wasn't for the disaster. So a lot of them psychologically, I think, had started to move on. You know, they were a little traumatized, but they mostly felt like they had made it through. But, you know, if you looked at where they were, you know, what job they were working, you know, whether they were living with their family, whether they were sort of renting rather than owning a home, you could usually see the the fingerprints of the disaster, I'd say in the majority of cases. Did you talk to people who have experienced multiple disasters? Oh, yeah. One of the first, one of the first uh, people I spoke to when I was researching the book, um, it's a woman who she didn't end up making it into the book. She didn't want to be included, her name at least. Um, but she had left Houston after Hurricane Harvey, and I was talking to her about where she'd ended up. She had taken a buyout uh, from FEMA. And I said, well, where did you go? And she said, well, you know, I'm from California. So I went to, you know, this tra I bought a trailer and I lived in a mobile home park in California. But then uh, that didn't work out so well because I then that mobile home park burned down. <laughs> and I was my jaw was like on the floor. I said, what? And she was kind of talking. It was more or less she sort of it seemed almost like natural to her that this would have happened. You know, she said, I have really bad luck. And I said, well, I mean, yes, you do have really bad luck, but also it's, it's amazing that you could have gone all the way across the country and it's happened to you again. So that was like one of the first people I spoke to. And there were a few other cases like that where people had somehow managed to, to lose two or even three different homes to different kinds of climate disasters. How do they deal with that? I don't, yeah, it's different for each person, right? For some people, they sort of incorporate it into the story of their own life and they make it about their own ability to overcome hardship and to show their personal resilience. And for a lot of people, they, they even talk about, oh, there's there's a silver lining for me because it showed me how strong I am or because I never would have ended up in, you know, meeting my new friends or my husband if I hadn't moved from one place to another. 
But for other people, you know, it's just really, really difficult to talk about. And they end up kind of just pretending it never happened. You know, they settle down in the first place they can. They have a really hard time talking to me about it or to anybody else. And it just kind of gets wiped out of their memory. So it's very different for each person because, you know, every person handles trauma in a different way. But I found that, you know, people generally either liked to talk about it a lot as part of their story or they just didn't want to talk about it at all. I was curious about when you were doing this research, how easy was it to find people? Because I can't imagine that record keeping and tracking of people, especially as they are displaced or have to move, is is very well done. Yeah, it was it was very, very difficult. The the FEMA buyout program, which you know you mentioned it, is probably the main way that the government has moved people out of the places that are most vulnerable to climate change. They do have records of every person who's participated in it, but the records are bad. There's duplicates, there's missing information. A lot of times it's just completely inaccurate. So that was really difficult. You know, that only helped me so much. In a lot of cases, you know, it's easy to go to a place and find the people obviously who are still there. So what I would often do is go to those places, talk to a bunch of people, and then try to figure out if they knew anybody who had moved on. And then a lot of times the people, you know, if you could find one person and moved on, then they knew another person. But yeah, it was extremely labor intensive because yeah, once people leave, especially if they are on the lower end of the income scale and they have to bounce around apartments, they kind of fall off the map. And there's no there's no government organization that really is is designed or to keep track of them or to keep tabs on them as they move around. It was interesting to read about the fact that sometimes entire neighborhoods, it's not just that they experience a disaster, but that whether it's through a wildfire that completely destroys the community, whether FEMA comes in and buys an entire community out, but we're seeing entire communities of people that are, you know, that, that, that neighborhood, that town is just gone. You wrote about, I believe it's Kingston in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me is even after that disappearance, they started having these reunions to come back together. And what was what was that like for them? I mean, did it just kind of, I don't know, extend yeah. the mourning, extend the grief, or was it something that helped them? Yeah, I think it helped them a lot because that neighborhood, right? It was one of the it's one of the oldest. African-American communities in the country. It was the first people came to that neighborhood, you know, not not more than a few decades after the end of the Civil War. And it was like the only place that most people in that community had ever lived. You know, certainly they were the first in the history of their families to own homes and nobody ever really wanted to live in any other place. But after the hurricane, the federal government didn't really give them all that much of a choice. You know, they basically said, we'll buy you out we're not going to do anything else to protect you. So, you know, you might as well take the deal. And that was like, a lot of people viewed this as sort of a form of um, almost like a humanitarian disaster, right? Like it erased this history and culture that was there. It was a tragedy for a lot of people. And so I think that, um, I think it helped them a lot to feel like they could keep tabs on hundreds or, you know, more than a thousand people who were in some way connected with the community and bring them back, you know, literally to the site of the old, neighborhood and keep those connections together. I think it's sort of brought home for me that, you know, when when climate change starts to destroy homes and when we start to move people out of the way, we're not just destroying, you know, physical structures. You know, we're not just incurring costs to property. We're losing these sort of intangible community bonds and social bonds that are really, really hard to replace. And it's also really hard to put a dollar value on. I think that that's one of the things that really struck me is because too often, or, or I should say, you know, that this is kind of the standard media reporting. Okay, we 
remember reading about 150,000 acres that burned or that, you know, there's damage in the billions, but, you know, reading this and finding out that the Tubbs fire literally destroyed 5,000 homes in a matter of an hour or two, or places like Kingston where thousands of people that lived in this neighborhood that lived in this area are just, they're not there anymore. I just wonder how do we change and focus more on those people and, and on what they go through and would that help us in our own community start to develop strategies, start to think about this as something that we need to prepare for? Yeah, I think I think for me it it brought home the the severity of the problem because the, the numbers, the thing is like the way that we respond to disasters and the way that we recover from disasters, it's all basically contingent on the value of the property destroyed and the damages incurred to you know each city or town. That's the way that you know that's the way that Congress works. It's all about dollars. They allocate money, and FEMA spends it. That's the way they have to look at it. But you know when you would go to these places and talk to people and just see how transformative in in really negative ways a disaster was for them and how things are just never really the same after that, it really did drive home for me. You know the urgency of trying to find ways both to help people get back on their feet after these things happen and to help them get to safe and affordable shelter, but also, you know, to do what we can to prepare for the disasters and protect the places where people aren't leaving, right? Because there's a tremendous amount of culture and history that stands to be lost if we do nothing. And so, yeah, I think that, I think it would help a lot for people to understand just the the deep personal and psychological stakes here, in addition to, you know, the number of taxpayer dollars that go to recover from a disaster that we haven't prepared for. I think that we used to view these kind of weather-related disasters as something that happened to just certain parts of the country. But we are seeing more and more, you know, hurricanes that are so strong that they cause flooding mm -hmm. so far inland, way beyond where the path is. I, f I forget the name of the hurricane, but in just in the last year or two, a hurricane hits Louisiana and more people died in New Jersey and New York from the yeah. lingering flooding and effects of that. Is it a mistake to think that there's anywhere that's really going to be safe? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's places there's there's risk and there's risk you know there's always going to be some places that just aren't going to face the same degree of just existential risk you know and despite what happened with hurricane ida you know i think that louisiana is always going to face a greater risk to property a greater risk in terms of fiscal damages from disasters than is you know north dakota like just there's certain places that just they just aren't set up to be as vulnerable to the disasters that we've seen so far. But yeah, I don't think you can say that there's really any place that is completely safe from climate change. You know, heat can happen anywhere. Flooding can really happen basically anywhere. Um, and droughts can happen all over the country. So yeah, I mean, I think every place is going to face some measure of risk and some measure of fragility. And every, you know, government official everywhere in the country needs to be thinking about what's the vulnerability of my specific town or city. But at the same time, there are places, you know, the US Gulf Coast, the South and Southwest that are gonna face, you know, basically every year, a kind of perennial extreme risk. And those are the places where we're gonna have to take a hard look at how do we prepare for this? How is, the, is, there, is it even possible for us to prepare for this? And what do we do in the places where there's just no amount of money we can spend to protect people permanently? There's this, glib response that you see if you read the comments or 
people are interviewed. You see this commonly after a hurricane or a wildfire where people say, well, they should just move. They shouldn't live there anymore. They should just, you know, don't rebuild there, just move somewhere else. And it's actually not that easy to do that. So what's wrong with that response? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the the example that you mentioned was perfect. You know, I was I was in Louisiana during Hurricane Ida and I was reporting on the immediate aftermath of that storm. And I live in New York City and I was telling people in New York, like, this is an unbelievable storm. And I'm coming back, I'm, I'm driving through these areas and I'm talking to people saying like, do you want to move? You know, are you guys going to stay? Are you going to rebuild? And they're all basically saying, yeah, we want to stay here in Louisiana. And my friend said, wow, that's, that's wild. And then two days later, the storm makes it to New York. And my friends were astonished. I was astonished. I wasn't even here by the volume of flooding and by how many people died, how many people lost their homes in that storm. I think it really drives home that it can kind of happen anywhere. And it's really a mistake to write off certain parts of the country and say, well, it's all their fault because A, the risks haven't always been clear and they're growing, but B, it's not a matter of just deciding to leave. Like that's a very difficult thing to do. It'd be difficult for me to pick up tomorrow and leave New York and it'd be difficult for someone else to pick up tomorrow and leave New Orleans. So I just think it's it's just a kind of a way of giving agency to people who don't always have it. It's just putting responsibility on people, the wrong people. Our country is already facing an affordable housing crisis in many parts of the community. And especially over the last five years, we've just seen housing prices at out of reach levels in the best of circumstances for most people. Is this going to just get worse as we experience more of these weather and climate related events? Oh, yeah. I think that in the places that are most vulnerable to climate change, you'll see housing become, you know, one of the main indicators that this problem has gotten worse you know we've already seen with wildfires and sea level rise a lot of really valuable property completely goes under or goes up in smoke and then there's just a lot of the the cost of insuring the property that doesn't get destroyed just goes up so much that it kind of rattles the local housing markets but then on the other side you know if you have a bunch of people leaving these vulnerable places and showing up in a place like Cincinnati for instance or you know Vermont that's always said to be very very resilient to climate change that's going to drive up housing prices in those places and the people who already live there are potentially going to suffer or get displaced because of that so i think as you said like it does kind of point us to the fact that it's really difficult to come up with a comprehensive solution to the problem of climate displacement unless you can find a solution to the problem of housing displacement period and housing affordability writ large. And when we talk about displacement, there's this real issue of socio and economic class that's also a factor that poor communities just aren't given the resources to rebuild. They don't have their own insurance. Maybe they don't even know they needed it. Do you see this contributing to the growing inequality and tension between different ethnic groups, different income groups, that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, whether you can recover from a disaster is really dependent on, you know, whether you are a homeowner and have equity in your home to begin with, and then whether and to what extent you bought insurance coverage and whether you're able to afford it. Um, and then there's a third problem, though, which is that, you know, the main funding programs that we have to do what's called like resilience programs, like to make places more resilient and more prepared for disasters and recover long term, those programs are, they're competitive grant programs, right? So individual states and cities have to apply for those and they're in competition with other states and cities. So the wealthier and better resourced cities 
are going to have a much easier time pulling down that money from the federal government to make those long-term investments to make their cities more resilient to future disasters, right? So there's a threefold problem. You know, one is about whether you even own a home and whether you can afford to repair that home, but also it's just the public infrastructure in your community is probably going to be decaying and falling behind if you're in a rural area where people can't grab that federal money. I was also reading that when you're talking about the wildfires in California and what happens afterward where landlords were suddenly raising the rents by thousands of dollars and there were bidding wars before houses even went on the market or apartments went on the market. Are are governments like California and other states starting to respond to this from, I guess, a legal standpoint to protect people who need to be able to find housing? I'm really glad you asked this because nobody's nobody's asked about that part of the book yet. And I thought it was one of the most alarming things that I heard, right, where people would get these insurance payouts and sometimes they would get, you know, X, Y, Z, thousands of dollars a month for living expenses from their insurance company. And the landlords knew that. And so they could charge rents of six, seven thousand dollars a month because they knew somebody out there had the insurance money to pay it. But if you didn't, there was almost nobody in, this was in Santa Rosa, California. There was almost no one who could afford that, who wasn't getting these big insurance checks. There was almost nowhere you could go. And the state, to my knowledge, didn't do anything. I think they cracked down on a few individual landlords. The state attorney general may have sued a few for price gouging, but it's a very difficult thing to to catch somebody in the act of doing. And I don't think that the state had the resources to go after you know all the offenders. And to my knowledge, I'm pretty sure it's happened uh, since then in later fires, and they may have gone after a few bad actors, but it was a really, really chronic problem. Um, the state has tried to tame the insurance industry, which is also raising prices by a lot uh, on premiums as things get riskier. The state has tried to stop the insurance industry from doing that. But in the private rental housing market, they've had a really difficult time dealing with that. I think people aren't aware too. Um, the part of New York that I live in, we've been through these hundred year, 500 year floods. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But there's this education process to help under pe- people understand that do they even live in an area where there's, there's this risk that they know ahead of time to try to get insurance of some kind? Is there any kind of education structure being built just to help people understand and assess the risks of where they choose to live? Yeah, I think that um, that one of the main areas where this has been, uh, where we've tried to do better on this is with disclosure requirements, right? So if you sell a home and it has lead paint in it, you have to disclose that, you know, if, as the home seller or the seller's agent, but with flooding in most states, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to double check this, but I don't think it's the case in New York where you, you, yeah, you don't have to tell a buyer of a home if there's a flood history there. And because of federal privacy laws, you actually can't look it up if you're the buyer. Um, So I think that, yeah, like this is one of those things where you can do all the education that you want and the government's try, you know, they'll, they'll do PSAs and stuff. But I think that the only way that you can really get this information into the market is if you make the disclosure requirements mandatory. We know that the Gulf Coast is going to be dealing with hurricanes, major storms, possibly even on a yearly basis. The South is going to get hotter and we'll be facing more drought events. California will be dealing with these huge wildfires on a regular basis. And yet these are the places with booming economies, with job growth, and and people are just flocking to those places. Are we setting up even bigger disasters as the population growth continues in these especially vulnerable areas? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, 
yes, climate change is making fires and floods worse, but a lot of the increase in the annual damages from these disasters is because we're putting so many more people in the way, right? And we're just, we're overloading the South and the Southwest pushing into some of the most vulnerable, you know, the outskirts of these cities, which are very prone to flooding and wildfire. And yeah, I think you'll see the, even in the absence of another giant disaster, like a Hurricane Katrina or another campfire that destroys, you know, like the town of Paradise, thousands of homes. I think you'll see the annual damages from these disasters go up and up and up. And just the sheer financial cost of addressing all this risk is only going to get larger, even if we get spared the worst of these disasters. That's a really important point to emphasize. At some point, there's going to have to be a reckoning, which is how, how much we seem unable to stop building and moving to the most vulnerable places. This is what I wanted to talk to when I referred to terms like the 100-year flood, the 500-year flood. Is that an outdated way of communication because people think, oh, well, it happened this year, so we're not due for whatever. Do those terms actually do harm? Oh, I I think that they're extremely misleading. Yeah, they, it has a very, very strange history. You know, it's basically an insurance term. And the, the Army Corps of Engineers used it as just decided that it was like the benchmark for what constituted good flood protection was the 100 year flood. They decided this, I don't know when, you know, decades and decades ago, and they've never really revised it. But yeah, it's just a strange term. People don't really understand what it means. And also, but even if you say 1% annual chance, people still don't understand that, that it can happen, you know, twice in two years. But also, you know, the, the numbers themselves are based on pretty outdated measurements. And there's pretty substantial reason to believe that, you know, what was a hundred year flood in a place like Houston is now closer to a 30 year flood. But again, it's like, what does that even mean? Yeah, I don't think that those are useful terms at all, even though I, I think I had to use them in the book because the federal government is is in many ways addicted to using them. Climate change has already happened. There, there There's no stopping it. But do you think that we still have time to veer away from the truly catastrophic events that our kids and grandchildren could face if we don't make those changes? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that there's some amount of really, really, really bad stuff that's just kind of baked in, even if we were able to to cut off carbon emissions tomorrow somehow. But I do think that, you know, there's enough technology and there's enough political momentum behind the problem now that if everything goes right, you know, if people sort of keep their foot on the gas, so to speak, no pun intended, um, you could hold warming to, you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius, which is just so, so, so different from three or four degrees, which was the projection at the beginning of the century. Like that's, there's quite literally a world of difference between those things. And even though, you know, we can't stop the warming of the planet immediately, I think people would be wrong to lose sight of the fact that, you know, in between 1.5 and four, that's millions and millions of people's lives. And just the world looks completely different at four than it does at 1.5. So we have to be careful not to lose sight of the fact that we can still make a lot of progress on this issue. Do you still think about the people that you spoke to researching this book? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still talk to a lot of them, you know, I mean, it's nice because now I can get like sort of like inside sources or updates on all the things that are going on in their town and how they're doing after disasters, but also just how the towns are recovering years later. And, you know, if I'm going around doing other stories for Grist where I work now, I usually check in on them and say hello to them. So yeah, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. Do you think that they want more people to know their stories? I do. I think that that's what made most of them willing to talk to me and relive these very, very difficult moments is that they thought that, you know, after the initial coverage of whatever had happened to them, they were kind of ignored and they really wanted people to know that, you know, it takes months, years for things to go back to normal if they ever do. 
Jake, thank you so much for talking with me. This was such an interesting and needed book. Thank you so much for having me. The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration is available now. You can follow Jake on Twitter or visit jakebiddle.com to learn more about his work. Just a reminder that Off the Page exists because of the generosity of listeners just like you. Make a donation to keep this kind of in-depth cultural programming coming to you. Go to wskg.org today and click on the Donate button. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app, make sure that you hit follow to stay up to date on all of the new episodes that are coming your way. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Saragas. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page.